This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. I first met Jordan Stevens when he appeared on stage with me at a How to Fail live show. He was so insightful, interesting, kind and clever that I knew I had to force him to speak to me again for a recorded podcast and happily he agreed. So here we are. Stevens was formerly one half of the band Rizzlekicks, formed with his childhood friend while they were both at school. They asked a wedding photographer to make their first video for their single Down With The Trumpets And when it was uploaded to YouTube, it became a viral hit. Signed by Island Records in 2010, their fans include, improbably, Stephen Fry. (laughs) But Stevens himself is nothing if not multifaceted. He's now an actor. He's appeared in both a Star Wars movie and Mae Martin's sitcom Feel Good. He's a solo artist. His latest album, Let Me Die Inside You, was released in February. And he's a writer. His debut children's book, The Missing Piece, tells the story of the determined Sunny as she sets off in pursuit of the final piece of an epic jigsaw puzzle. Yet Stevens himself has never been afraid of exploring the darker side of life. He has spoken openly about his ADHD, his sobriety, and the challenges of fame and toxic masculinity. For me, he says, a big part of my maturing as a human being came from facing my darkness head on. Everybody, I believe, has a shadow self. Jordan Stevens, welcome to How to Fail. Hi. Hi. You've got an epic, you have an epic intro voice. Thank you. That's so nice. I'm actually always really nervous reading out an introduction in front of someone because I just, I don't know. I think I have imposter syndrome about my own intros that I'm worried I've got something wrong. But you were nodding throughout, which was really nice of you. So thank you. No, no, no. And I'm so happy that we're recording this conversation because when we did that show at the Royal Festival Hall, the audience 
absolutely loved you and could relate to so much of what you were saying. And I think yours is such an important voice in contemporary culture. And I love that quote that I ended on. Everybody, I believe, has a shadow self. What's your shadow self, Jordan? Well, it's funny hearing that. Uh, I don't know when I said that, but I think everybody does. From since probably saying that I've done more learning and reading and, you know, and I'm definitely a fan of Carl Jung, who is the psychologist, I think, most famed for coining the kind of shadow self term and, and the battle we have yeah, with ourselves constantly. The battles I have are often with obsessive tendencies, addiction, destruction, annihilation kind of thing. That was what I battled in my 20s, in my mid-20s especially. I started to fight it. But I think I've, I have the potential to be incredibly hedonistic. That's what mm. it is. And, and hedonism can be incredibly fun. But it comes at a cost. For me, that, that cost was intimate relationships. I wasn't really able to maintain relationships that I wanted to maintain, nurture them, you know, take care of them. And so, yeah, I had to confront that part of me that was perhaps scared of attachment or scared of commitment. It definitely showed up in self-harming, abusive cycles. So when you got sober, do you see that term as encompassing not just substance, but also a sort of sobriety from those damaging behaviours? So, yeah, with me, I think in my personal experience, I didn't have an issue with particular substances or with particular, yeah, anything specific. My addiction, I think, was just with anything that I could kind of destroy. I was a self-saboteur. I would just self-sabotage. And I had to take steps to ensure that I was in my body, in myself, do you know what I mean? That I, I could make more informed, mature decisions and confronting that is painful. And I think that confrontation is a really important part of growing up, of life. I think pain is what creates maturation. But yeah, that was what it was for me. And how old are you now? I, I couldn't work out whether you are 30 or you're about to turn 30. Yeah, no, I am 30. I turned 30 this year. Okay. And how was that for you? Because I remember being stupidly quite anxious about turning 30 because I thought well I'll never achieve anything at young age ever again like I'll never be impressive for my youth and then actually I turned 30 and I felt this real sense of relief that I was getting more in sync with who I actually was rather than who I was pretending to be a lot in my 20s. Yeah I feel that I hear that I think I have always had this marker in my head ever since I was like 19, that 35 would be this great age to get to. I don't understand why I thought that, but I just have always gone, nah, 35, that's when some, I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, I just have this idea, this benchmark. But I was surprised that I was affected by turning 30, actually. I was, I did feel it. I did go oh, I'm in another decade now. I am in a space of total responsibility, total accountability. I'd like to be in that space. And that's a scary space. Everything is on me, really, in terms of my own forward movements. It did impact me more than I thought it would. I felt the transition. I felt the shift. I felt the desire to step up to it almost like physically, you know, put my shoulders back and really, really try and focus in on total responsibility, accountability, you know, make informed decisions going forwards. I think it's true what you're saying, man. Like the start of my 20s, really fun. For me, it was especially peculiarly fun because of, for me, the added thing of kind of notoriety and I had money suddenly and, and all this stuff. But yeah, anxious as fuck. Like, mm. you know, 
I've always been an odd kid, odd child, left out, misfit kind of vibes. And that became incredibly heightened in my mid-20s. I felt like I didn't understand anything that was going on, really. And so, yeah, heading into my 30s, I feel more stable. I'm in a relationship with someone who I love. And in terms of my career, I've got more of an idea of where I want to go. And that feels secure. And you're in a relationship with someone who understands the tensions of fame, aren't you? Because she's in Little Mix, (laughs) might have heard. And that relationship, I understand, developed during lockdown. And I'm very intrigued by the fact that lockdown for you was quite a positive experience, wasn't it? Yes, controversially. Because I you know, know people who, it was incredibly tough for them, lockdown. And I understand why, especially if you're in London, to be honest. I was lucky I was out of London for lockdown by pure chance. And so had a lot more space, a lot more time. And for the most of it, it was pretty much just me and my dog. And I used the time to just go into complete self care mode like in a way I'd never really done it before in terms of you know making food for myself that was nutritious and that my body needed and training every day and doing rituals (laughs) like you know like genuine self-care rituals you know writing down I did like a 21 day meditation I was just I was just in that mode you know and it really helped me it really helped me shift into a different part of my life I tapped into a different side of me well, I think we'll speak about it in a okay. bit. Okay. <laughs> How did the relationship start then? Did you slide uh, into her DMs? No, she slid into my DMs, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure dating generally was quite weird in lockdown. I don't really know what everyone else was doing. But yeah, I hadn't been single for very long. And my mates were convincing me to get on board with this. <laughs> with like, I don't know, like, I don't know dating apps or something like that. And I, I wasn't really that into the idea of doing it. But... I had a mate who I remember, like he told me ages ago that I'd really get along with Jade. I just remember him saying it. <laughs> so I just texted him going like, yo, I remember he said about Jade, like you reckon we get along and he just hit her up and then we started talking and I was like, oh wow, okay. And I, to be honest, I thought it'd just be just something to stim- <laughs> keep me stimulated. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know, I didn't know. It's such an odd situation. You yeah. know, we're like literally in lockdown. I didn't really know anything about her and, so I was saying to my mates, oh my God, you know, I was like, yeah, Jade's hit me up. This could be fun, you know, this is... And then like two, three weeks in, I was like, oh shit, no, I actually really like, <laughs> I actually really like her. And I'd just been writing all these lists about of like what I wanted going forwards in the future. And, and I felt like I kind of manifested her a bit, to be honest. Um, so I did the same thing. I wrote a list of everything that I wanted in a partner. And yeah. then I set it alight and then I scattered the ashes into the wind And that was in November 2017. And in March 2018, I met Justin, who's now my husband. And I took a photo of that list because I'm not stupid. Um, (laughs) And I went back and I checked it. Every single thing. It was extraordinary. He checked every single box. Elizabeth, I'm being super serious about this, right? It's real. Manifestation, this intention field. I will die on this hill. It's one of the things that frustrates me the most. I'm sure there is a lot of scientific evidence to support the idea that you can create with thoughts. Really, truly. Everything started in the imagination, if you think about it. Every idea, every piece of clothing, every anything, was it was in someone's mind, you know, and then it was brought into reality. And I think it's powerful. Yeah, yeah well, it's very Jungian of you, because obviously Jung believed in the collective consciousness. And yes. when we choose to use that power 
then energy does attract energy. Having said that, I've tried a mood board and that's still not coming true. So, <laughs> a, a mood board? Yes, where you put images that represent the things that you want to achieve or that you want to bring into your life. Oh, it actually is a mood board. Oh, right, but a manifesting mood board. Yes, that's what I meant. Oh, yeah. No, I think maybe yeah. I'm more verbal than image, so maybe I just need to write the lists. I think words are pretty powerful, man. Like actually yeah. having written. Also, you you went all in. You went like full witch mode with the burning and that. That's what we need. Yo, we need that shame and we need that shame and energy. No, serious. I was just, I was raised. Listen, my mum, my mum raised me with all of this energy. Like my mum raised me around crystals. You know, I remember burying crystals in the park and shit. Like my mom, we used to howl at the moon. <laughs> I'm obsessed with your mum because doing the research for this interview. I found out a lot about her. So she's described in one interview that you did years ago as a therapist and part-time Uber driver, like already obsessed. Then she famously mouthed, she lip-synced the rap in Mama Do the Hump. Yeah. And then I discovered that her father was a really famous film director, your grandfather. Yeah. He was a twin and he directed with his twin brother. Yeah. And they were both married multiple times. And your cousin is like Crispin Mills, who was in Kuda oh, Shaker. Yeah. yeah, mad, mad. It's so mad. Yeah, mad links, mad links. Yeah, Kuda Shaker. Crispin's great. I don't see him that often. We have a bizarre family. This is the white side of my family. Mm. It's bizarre because they were identical twins. So, wow. <laughs> so we have like wow. this. They were identical, multiple woman marrying men so they've got this you know long and windings family tree of people who actually look quite similar yeah uh, but yeah that was an incredible aspect of my of my british side yeah and your black side so your dad's yeah. from guyana is that right no my dad was born here my grandparents are from guyana they came over i think in like the 50s and then the other grandparents are british but my dad was born in london and so your grandmother came over with the windrush generation didn't she The generation, yeah. I don't know if it it was Windrush specifically, but there was that generation, yeah. Okay. Now, tell me about the children's book, because I imagine growing up, you would not have been in the position where you saw an enormous amount of people like you reflected in children's literature. How important was it for you to set that right? It's a weird one. Like many things in my life, I didn't think I would write a kid's book. It wasn't like a massive plan of mine to write kid's books. I wanted to write. I like expressing myself in any form I can, really. And it just appeared in my life that I could tell this story through this medium. And then it became important for me to do that because it is a homage to my Guyanese grandmother, especially, who used to sit me down and, yeah, and we'd recite poetry together. We'd read poets And in terms of picture books, I had my favourites. My favourite authors were actually Janet and Alan Allberg. And yeah, there weren't any black characters, but it was never overthought at that time. It's one of the things that happens. It's one of the, I suppose, realities of growing up in a predominantly white nation. My grandmother herself felt quite indoctrinated by British culture. Even the whole time I knew her, she would sometimes talk about royals and shit like that. You know, as part of being from the Caribbean, you kind of... uh, indoctrinated with this colonial mentality sometimes so I didn't think about it and also my favorite Janet Lawberg book is Funny Bones and they're all skeletons so they literally had no color there's no, there no race there but when it did come to poets you know and we were re- reading off the page there weren't many pictures and the poets would be varied like mm-hmm. John Agard was a massive part of my 
upbringing. Benjamin Zephaniah was a huge part of my upbringing. And that was in balance with, you know, Michael Rosen. And the real conflicting thing for me, and this is, will forever conflict me, is that my grandmother's favourite poem was If by Rudyard Kipling. Wow. So And she would recite this poem in the most beautiful way you've ever seen. Like it's, she just had this joyous way of delivering poems. And the phenomenal thing about her was she did suffer from some dementia. She definitely deteriorated, but she didn't forget who I was, which I was very lucky with. My other grand did. But she would recite these poems. Like on her deathbed, she would just burst into poetry and song. But Rudyard Kipling is a contentious figure because he wrote White Man's Burden, I think. He had this kind of very white supremacist ideology. But If is a great poem. And yeah. my grandma delivered it in a wicked way and I've got it tattooed on my arm. And some people even look at the poem as a bit of a joke because it's like a entry-level man poem kind of thing. But that was all I knew growing up was this Caribbean woman reciting this beautiful fucking poem. That is fascinating because it's such a deep question that whether you can ever decontextualize the art from the artist. Yeah. I love that all phrase. The ti- all the time, the time itself, you know. Exactly. I love that phrase, entry-level man. And before I get onto your failures, I just want to commend you because I'm often asked when I do events whether men and women view failure differently. And my answer is always, well, during the first season of my podcast – most of the men said, I don't think I failed. So I'm going to struggle coming up with anything. <laughs> and most of the women said, oh my God, I failed so many times. I don't think I can whittle it down to just three. You, Jordan Stevens, are a perfect example of the strength, power and beauty of male vulnerability. Because you've given me four failures. <laughs> We're going to concentrate on the first three. And then if we have time, we'll get on to the final one. But just before we start, how do you feel about being vulnerable as a straight man, has it taken you a while to be comfortable with it? I don't know, because the most predominant part of my personality in this space is my impulsivity, I think. So I've always impulsively said how I feel. And actually, (laughs) for a large part of my life, I didn't feel as though I had a choice. I was so impulsive, I'd have to just figure out what I'd said after. So I I would say something that would put me in a space of vulnerability without even realising, really, and then I'd deep it. So it feels more complex for me answering that question because it was only when I started to look at my ADHD through different forms and eat differently and exercise, whatever else, that I have less impulsivity and more control over what I say and feel. But I just think I learned at some point, it could have been from my parents or I don't know what, I mean, my mum maybe with her therapy courses, I don't know. But I definitely understand that being honest with a person about how you feel creates a connection. I just know that in myself. I know that I like it when someone does that with me. I want to create that space for that person because... That's how all relationships are built. I think true connections, bonds are built in those moments where you're, you've opened yourself up, you know, you've rolled on your back, as it were. <laughs> Preach. This is everything that had to be I don't know why. I s- can I be clear, though, when I say rolled on the back? I mean, as in. You meant like I a mean, dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, don't worry. I got that. Um, I can see um, why Jade's attracted to you. Oh, for God's <laughs> sake. No, but <laughs> I'm fascinated of human beings. I really want to know about people. I like patterns i like forming patterns about people you know cultural tribal shifts i like seeing that people who do this like this or people who say this like that so i i would love to hear about the most truthful parts of the human condition and you know i have to play my own part in that Mm. well Uh, let's get on to that let's give you the space to be truthful these are such extraordinary failures and i'm so appreciative of them your first failure and i cannot tell you how much i relate to it is your failure to be angry with the people you love So tell us why you chose this one. Or actually, no, tell us how that failure manifests. This failure is a perfect way of summarizing what you began asking me, because my whole therapy journey has been around anger. My whole battle with my shadow self has been anger um, in fact this would have been a way better answer at the start <laughs> but like the shadow but that my shadow self becomes most visible in the spaces when I'm not angry when I'm not holding my own boundaries right so the root of my self-destructive tendencies it appears this is what I've got to with my therapist and I agree with it because it, it does make sense and it's there's been patterns it appears to be at points where instead of being angry with a person I love, and, I'm, but, and by angry, we mean healthy anger, right? We mean, I don't like this, or I don't want to do this, or I don't appreciate that, or I don't, you know, not that kind of thing. I don't want to be treated like that. Instead of that, <clears throat> I bottle it up and I take it out on myself. That's the root of it. And that kind of self-harm would become, you know, drug abuse, betrayal you know I've messed up relationships in that space because I've been so high you kind of this self-saboteur thing and just addictive tendencies escape do you know what I mean rather than Mm. and then I I traced it back and especially with drinking alcohol and cocaine and stuff like that like which is the stuff I've cleared out of my life for years now four and a half years now it would always be linked to a thing that's happened one thing someone's upset me and I love them though so I can't tell them and so I have to hurt myself and where does that come from in the sense of do you think you are fearful that if you speak up for yourself or you express your discontent that they will leave you yes is it the same for you a hundred percent the same oh mate what is that (laughs) so well you tell me what it is (laughs) what is Uh, it for you is it to do with your parents probably Probably. I mean, it all stems from that. I'm a big fan of Gabo Mate. And he theorizes that a lot of these early experiences, zero to three, you know, between the ages of zero and three, three and seven, inform the latter stages of our life. I'm interested in him because he talks a lot about ADHD and how he describes it really rang true with me. I grew up with very little money. My mum was under some stress. My dad was under some stress. You know what I mean? They, My mum and dad weren't together. They had an amicable relationship. My dad was around, you know, but they're we live in a, a world where if you're struggling, if you're at the bottom of that barrel, if you're on the dole, you know, I was homeless for a couple of years. My mum was staying at our friend Tina's house. Like it, you pick up on that as a kid, you pick up on it. And I think, you know, you don't want to get angry with your parents necessarily. And that anger turns inwards. That has a lasting effect. And a lot of our society deal with this, you know, it's just a, the way it is. It's a tough world, man. It's a, it's a vicious world. And are you an only child? Yeah. Until recently, I've got two little brothers now. Okay. Because I think that comes with a specific kind of internalised responsibility as well, doesn't it? Because you feel like you're the only one 
who can keep your parents happy, which is obviously not your responsibility as a child. And it's every individual's responsibility to make themselves happy. But I can completely see how you might internalise that. Are you an only child? No, I'm not. I've got an older oh, sister. Right, but yeah. There's four years between us and it's actually quite a big gap four years. You can be at very different stages. So she was yeah. at secondary school, I was at primary school. So I'm not an only child, but I definitely did feel worried a lot and wanted to make people happy. And I wanted right. to make people yeah, like yeah. me and approve of me. Oh, mate. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's it. And I wouldn't say that there was a specific event, but I think, you know, our child selves, we don't, can't put words to our emotions necessarily. And so we might blame ourselves for things that happen. You know, we yeah. might blame ourselves for people not being around. I've realized I'm talking generally, which is an avoidant thing. I've learned that as well in therapy. I should be talking about me. Did it's I blame myself? It's also great for podcasts if you talk more personally. Thanks. I know, I know. I keep saying we. It's an, it's an avoidant technique that's out of... That's fascinating. That, thank yeah. you for sharing that. And thank you for checking <laughs> yeah. yourself. I also notice it a lot with when I used to do newspaper interviews with celebrities, if they'd be media trained, they would also use that tactic in order yeah. to avoid talking personally. Well, that is a thing. I talk a lot about my personal life because I believe it's important to be as honest as possible. But I just have to catch myself sometimes in terms of like wording things in the right way. And, don't, you know, I don't want to. Mm. As a child, I may have been fearful that people I love would go blame myself if I thought people weren't there, that kind of thing. So that manifests itself when I'm older. Now I'm older. And yeah, I do really have that. And that trigger is still there, Elizabeth. Like I had it the other day. So I've been sober for four and a half years. I've done a lot of therapy, a lot of reading. I find it fascinating. And one of my best friends and I had an argument the other day and he thought I was wrong and I thought I was right. <laughs> and, but he, you know, and we got heated, but in, in a loving way, as you would, brotherly almost. But I fucking, something happened in me, man. I can't explain it. Like I, I was triggered. I felt the thing in me. It was a deeper wound and I had to fight this irrational, if there was an irrational part of me that was kicking in. And if I'd had access to my former vices, that might've been a point. You know, that's a conversation. And all the voices in my head were like, well, that's him gone then. No, you're not friends anymore now. Just because I had a differing point. Yeah, I have exactly the same thing. And I have never been as famous as you have and are. But I even get it with, you know, a stranger's comment on social media. If they say something disapproving of me, my immediate instinctive reaction is not to say, actually, that's wrong. I know my intentions. And also, who do you think you are? My instinctive reaction is to turn that inward and be like, yeah, no, I have done something wrong. And now everyone's yeah. going to see that and everyone's going to laugh at me and hate me. Like it spirals yeah. so quickly. And the wrong so I, thing is wild. Yeah. So how did you deal with that? As famous as you were in Rizzle Kicks? Oh, I would individually fight everyone. How did that I go would for you? I would find the individual Twitters and I would get them to send me a fucking 400 word essay. <laughs> no, no, I genuinely would. I'd track it down and I'd ask them. I was bordering on obsessed in the early stages, of course. So I was like, what? why? Why don't you like Rizzle Kicks? Why don't you like this? You know, I'd argue. I was I backed Rizzle Kicks wildly as I had this self-belief. I just really was so driven and I was so sure about where we were going. And that was before things in my life 
other things happened that knocked me a little bit as you do as you get older you know people in my life died who I loved and you know relationships became more difficult all this kind of stuff people started saying no to me and record labels that's what ended up I suppose grounding me or calling me into a different type of battle but before that point yeah I'd argue I'd get into beef with people <laughs> the difference now I feel is that I'm aware of that side of me I know it exists so I watch it a little more I still feel it I'd like to not feel it but I definitely have an option now to watch it why does that person do this why didn't that person like this or why doesn't that and then I just have to adult Jordan has to step in and be like everybody on this planet is living such complex lives with so many battles that I would not be able to even begin to understand and really my place in their battle is tiny even though my ego wants me to think that I'm really important and actually their decision to not like a thing or say this thing or do this thing and even though my ego wants me to think that that's a massive part of their life <laughs> that they've said that they've had that encounter with me I'm so important in actuality you know that's beautiful so that's some beautiful wisdom right there We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. So can I ask you now in your relationship, is there a safe space? Like, Are you practicing being able to say, no, all this bothers me? How do you deal with it in a romantic relationship? I'm asking for myself. Yeah, no, 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 for real. (laughs) Oh, I mean, it's a tricky one. I think with my romantic relationship, I think because of the work, the stuff I did in lockdown, the boundary side of it was really, really important to me early on because my issue is that I have a, again, a shadow side of me that can begin to formulate theories that the person I'm with isn't on my team. And that is exhausting. And that's where it gets tricky, I think. It has got tricky for me in the past when I don't think the person I'm with is on my team and I am fighting them. And then I conspiracize that every micro movement that I don't enjoy or against me is to take me down. But with my current relationship, 
I was very clear early on about what I needed because I didn't think I knew what I needed before. I know what I feel. I know what I need now from a relationship. And, and yeah, I made it super clear at the start. And when it first came up, I made the boundary clear and the boundary was respected. And I really do believe that my girlfriend has a wonderful heart and genuinely has my best interests at heart. And I can trust that. And I didn't realize that I needed that as much as I do. And so even when we do get into it I don't conspiracize that it's going to go I actually have this wonderful thing where I'm like this will be okay actually in about like worst case scenario a day that makes me so happy for you I have exactly the same thing and I I had never appreciated before meeting my partner how integral safety is to love feeling safe with someone is one of the most romantic things that can ever happen. And I think you're so right because it enables you to communicate and not be scared of what you have to say, but to understand on both parts that the communication is the most important thing. Thank it you. Is. And people do say that it's said all the time that communication is key. It's the most common piece of relationship advice, I think. And I definitely can attest to that from my own personal experience. But it is hard. It's not easy. You know what I mean? It's not like I've you know done this work and now I'm you know skipping through a meadow of wonderful plant. Meadow? Meadow of meadow? Oh God, I'm struggling today. <laughs> but I do think I have a responsibility in my relationship to hold my boundaries and to make it clear what I, I need and to hold my partner's needs and boundaries and whenever that happens it it works then it should be relationship equality in terms of wants and needs yeah hard though man listen it's not easy we're all works in progress so thank you so much for sharing that because I think it will resonate with so many people your second failure is your failure to appreciate what you've already achieved again I feel like your grandfather being a twin. I feel like we have very twin approaches to life. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I, I get from you that you are a quester. Yeah. You have this enormous drive to experience life in multiple different directions. Do you yeah. think that's what it is that means you never take stock? Oh, I do love discovery. That is for sure. I'm very curious. I've always been like that. I've always been a curious child. I wonder what it is that my mum, how that happened with my mum. But I even remember as a little boy, I used to live in Neasden in Northwest London and I would just ask questions. Sometimes I almost put myself in trouble because sometimes in certain areas in London, you can't be asking too many questions, honestly. Otherwise, otherwise people start questioning you. But yeah, I've always been curious. That has become a incessant need to keep going. But I also think I am picking up on a societal outlook that pushes that idea too. You know what I mean? Like we live in a society that is hyper-productive. Everything's about productivity. What are you doing? What are you working on at the moment? Do you know what I mean? Like this award, that award, awards, awards, awards. Like, you know, this person's doing that. It's all very networky, bordering on sociopathic sometimes, right? So... I look into that as we all do. It's unavoidable, even if I am. Or say with this podcast, for example, you'll have to, this is a brilliant, successful podcast. There'll be moments when someone goes, would you like to come to this award show? You know, you've been up for an award and then now you're measuring it. Now you're measuring the podcast, you know? So we're in this fight. I I certainly feel like as in I'm in this productivity battle that we're all in and it's going into hyperdrive in some spaces, music being a good example of that. But I wrote this down as a failure because for me, it has flared up immensely. And I mean that. And that's why I wrote this kid's book. It's why I wrote The Missing Pieces because I was talking about myself. I was talking about my own 
just this image in my mind of just finishing a puzzle, finishing a beautiful jigsaw puzzle and not even looking at it. Mm. You know what I mean? Just dashing it to the side, starting the next one. Because I just like the feeling of finishing it. I like the feeling of completion, but I always need it again, you know? I think only within the last two years of my life, three years of my life, have I even realised what happened with Rizzle Kicks. I hadn't even processed it until being sober, older, and being like, whoa, hold on, hold on. Like, I'm actually really happy with what I did. Because all I was focusing on back then was what we weren't doing. You know what I mean? I know exactly. Ah, oh, we never went to America. Do you know what I mean, we had that meeting with that American, ah, or, you know, ah, this, or that song never went to there, or da 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 da, all these holes, you know. And then I was like, for me specifically, the biggest head fuck for me was me and Harley both had a dream. We wanted to have a platinum album, and we got it with the first attempt. That's not normal. That's not a usual thing to happen. So I've had to deal with that. I've had to come to terms with that. And we never just sat there, I don't think, and went, well, great. We did, you know, great, fantastic. That was a completed move. I think you're so accurate when you describe this hyper-productive structure that we're all living in, which feeds off our innate insecurities and our need for competitiveness and comparison. I think where I've got to in my life, because I am also really competitive and I wish that I weren't, like I wish... And I'm striving to feel that the quality of the work and the joy of it is enough. How it's received is a completely separate thing beyond my control. Like I just need to believe in the integrity of what I'm doing. And I think the thing about comparison, the curse of it, is that you're constantly looking at other people and you're never valuing yourself as a result. Yeah, massively. And also that we lose the subjectivity of achievement. That's the other interesting thing. Like for some people, yes. going on a run that day is an unbelievable achievement. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But we're in a world of perpetual metric. Yeah, it's a head fuck. The whole message with the kids book is that the real the kind of true completion is the accepting of incompletion. That, yes. That's, you know, and I think that's a philosophy I strive every day to live by, you know. That's stunning. And it's the same as, the only perfection is the acceptance and celebration of imperfection. Yeah, That's no, true truly. enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah, because it's this idea of end point, this chasing of carrots. I have to teach myself to enjoy the journey. You know, it's the classic mm-hmm. saying that happiness is a journey, not a destination. And I fall victim to it all the time. I always think if I just get this, I'll feel that. If I just, you know, that addictive mindset, that addiction cycle, that's that's it. This world is creating more addicts, more ADHD minds, more all of this because of what we're in the middle of, you know? Screens everywhere, adverts everywhere, competition everywhere, you know? So we just have to be a little aware of that and just pat ourselves on the back for just surviving, man. Just for being alive sometimes, like, fuck. Your third failure is your failure to get naked in the showers after a football match in Serbia. So tell me the story. Why were you in Serbia playing a football match, first of all? (laughs) All right, listen, I'm just going to be straight up with you. Yeah, I put this failure because when you were saying earlier about men not lifting their failures, that's fascinating, by the way. I didn't know that. That's a real life metric. Yeah, it's changed massively as the podcast has grown. And I, I think partly because more people understand what I'm getting at when I talk about how to fail. But also the other thing, and you've written so brilliantly about this, is that toxic masculinity traps us all. It traps all genders. And there are probably a lot of 
men, conventionally raised men, who don't feel able to admit that they got something wrong, who don't feel able to be vulnerable in that way. And so that was probably at play as well. Yeah. I actually don't like using the word toxic masculinity anymore. I think it's got a bit weird, you know. Do you? Tell me more about that. Yeah, yeah, It's like a bit hollow because people use it too much. Yeah, well, there's this, I listened to this really fascinating podcast with uh, a researcher. She did research around men for a university. (laughs) Because it's been a few years now, it's become a bit enmeshed as a term and it, it begins to incite or infer that masculinity has a dormant toxicity. Yeah. Which, you know, shadow self's cool. That's more of an individual conversation, perhaps. But it wasn't having a particularly positive effect on men. It was almost like they've got this thing in them that is going to maybe pop off, maybe not, you know. Whereas the reality of the situation is it's a societal ideology that we all pick up on, particularly men. It's like a hegemonic idea of masculinity. And, and you are right. Hegemonic masculinity definitely encourages the idea of emotional suppression or confronting the concept of failure, even though it is one of the most productive things you could ever confront, you know? Mm. Yeah, thank you for challenging that because I do think a lot of those terms, they can be well-intentioned, but they can end up making feel an individual less than. As you say, they're kind of bored into having this fatal character flaw. And I think we have to be so careful as well as self-proclaimed feminists not to see that as wanting young girls in the playground to have dominance over young boys because actually young boys need to feel that they have a role to play as well and that it's a partnership, not about dominance. Yeah. I mean, listen, that's a whole other podcast there. The the girls at my school were wild. Yeah. (laughs) But again, I always, when I look, when I listen to these podcasts, I look at the research, we're in a new generation too, that has access to all types of stuff that I never had as growing up as a young boy. So it is fascinating. But yeah, just for me personally at the moment, but I used to use the term all the time because for me, I believe that inferred that masculinity isn't toxic. Like toxic masculinity inferred that masculinity in itself is a beautiful thing, which I still believe but it's just you know I'm just aware of of how it's potentially mutated Mm. and because I genuinely do the more work I've done on myself and the more research I've done I genuinely do want young men especially to feel empowered to feel grounded and value themselves because I think that is what will benefit men and women that is what will counteract you know some of the more destructive behavioral patterns that occur in our society you know and hegemonic masculinity that idea of what it means to be a man what clothes to wear whatever else is flawed as fuck we all know this men are victims of this idea you know massively and it's old and it's and it needs to evolve as we're done but I think in order to be able to make that shift we need to have our palms open you know what I mean we have to have our arms open and yeah not infer that these people are sticks of dynamite or bombs or something but hegemonic masculinity I'm totally going to steal that phrase from you yeah from well I think I just heard it I heard it <laughs> it's not my phrase <laughs> we'll steal I mean, it from whoever the woman like a, doing the research yeah, it's like a societal understanding yeah. but Anyway, so getting naked in the football showers. Yeah, right. So I said this because I actually already gave you other failures as well. So this is four failures, and I gave you three. Oh, you for, gave the... Like, for the live show. <laughs> yeah, for you the did. Live I'm show so well. sorry. <laughs> so I'm on like seven failures. Yeah. So like this is great. And the story is, and the reason I said this is, yes, yeah, so I was in Serbia. I was shooting a film in Serbia with a few people, and one of them had a mate who played football, and we all went and played football with these Serbians. And after the match, 
we're in a changing room and then everyone's just naked, yeah? Everyone's just getting... It's a very common thing in the football space anyway for men in football. After the match, you get naked and you shower. I thought it was very interesting for me because it's like a confronting part of my own relationship with myself. <laughs> I don't know. I, I want to ask my other guy mates, but it's like, I don't know. Here's a question for you, Elizabeth. Yeah. Is it usual for women to get naked in front of each other casually? It is in like gym changing rooms. And I, like you, find it so awkward and discomforting. And then I feel annoyed with myself that I feel it's awkward and discomforting and I should just be as free as easy and embracing as everyone else is. But I imagine with men, it comes with a whole pile of stuff attached that maybe it doesn't as much with women. Like maybe there's more a sense of... I don't know. You'll have to tell me. But is there more a sense of like, yeah, competition and stay, yeah, yeah, like yeah, staking yeah. your territory? Well, this is what I thought was so beautiful about this situation is that the men in this changing room but of genuinely, and I mean it, of all extremes, shapes and sizes, that it was just a totally cultural, normal thing. And, and like I say, in, in England even, that is, I think, a thing. I get naked in the gym changing rooms too, you know? But there's still... You're I naked just now thought, for anyone who's this I'm podcast. Naked. <laughs> <laughs> what you can't see... He's just in the buff. No, oh, he's not. Fuck's sake. Sorry, carry on. Um, but, so yeah, and, and in that moment, I suppose I just thought about, it just made me think about men's bodies and my own body. And I thought using that as a failure would be an interesting segue into being able to talk about my own relationship with my body, basically. Yes. I, I, there wasn't really a particular reason why I didn't get naked other than the fact that I was a bit taken aback by how casual it was. And in truth, I really, really wanted to. Actually, all the British guys there, I think, didn't. So maybe there was just a cultural difference there. So let me ask you this. Are you comfortable with the body that you're in? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am comfortable with my body, but I do have battles with my body, actually. And it's something I'm, I'm really looking forward to exploring more in this book I'm writing. And also there's a few things I'm working on where I'm hoping my honest representation of my own battle with my body will create a space for men to interact with it. So for example, for years I've suffered with body dysmorphia. It goes up and down, it flares up and uh, depending on, you know, stress situations, whatever else. And I'm so confident that a lot of boys and men suffer with this. This idea of the perfect body, the muscly body. The, and the thing is, I've got a good body. I know that. In the bigger picture, the grand scheme of things, I've got a great body. I'm constantly affirmed by my girlfriend, etc. And yet there's this thing because it's not really represent. I don't know what it is that why my obsessive tendencies have gone into this space particularly. But I know speaking to my guy friends that they all kind of, most of them go through that thing of like noticing where the bits of fat turn up on your body and, and wanting to shift that and changing the diet to shift that. And most of the time I have it reasonably under control, but when it's bad, it can get bad, man. It can get bad. It can verge on an eating disorder sometimes if I'm in a particularly stressful space. And for me, that might be because I have, got rid of most of my other vices perhaps all my addiction is focusing on this one area but when I think about men's bodies on a more general level 
I think there is a lot of potential shame around men's bodies and there is a lot of pressure and it's becoming more and more pressurised actually. You know, we have 38 films or whatever into like Marvel gods and heroes that have just been papering the cinemas for like the last 10 years, 15 years, just all with a very, very, very wild idea of what a man's body should be. And I know also that a lot of women don't even desire it necessarily, this male body. So men are in this man-only space where they're kind of moulding and sculpting themselves for themselves or for other men I don't know it's or wanting to gain control perhaps it's a control thing you know like something they can control and define and mould for me it might be a control thing and then in terms of like men's genitals and another space where I wonder about our society's relationship with male genitalia there's a lot of body shaming for men that's completely accepted in normal culture to shame that we have this bizarre association between penis size and like goodness of a person which i think is so fucking weird i don't go to my mum about it before my mum would do it like with road rage or whatever she'll put a little pinky finger up at a <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah. if some guys cut her up and i've gone like i don't understand that like logically why does penis size correlate with the ability to drive like that's <laughs> do you know what i mean it's in that space like, it's so mind-blowingly refreshing to hear you talk about this because I've actually never thought about that. To my shame, I've never thought about that and I would be outraged if the same thing were done about a woman's vagina or a woman's breast size, which does happen. Like you're so right to call it out. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It, listen, yeah, I need to be clear. It's definitely not a deflective, you know, kind of tool or whatever. It happens all the time in terms of the female body being policed constantly. But yeah, the secrecy around, yeah, male genitalia. I worry perhaps that it does create a more tense, anxious generation of men. Because also the other thing with dicks is that you can't change them. You know what? I don't even know that. Maybe you can. But like, I think... It seems to be a staple thing. And I remember my, all my anxieties as a teenager about growing up and puberty. I hit puberty really late. A lot of guys were talking all types of shit when I was in my teens and I was thinking, oh my God, am I growing at the right rate? All this kind of stuff. And then I did hit puberty a lot later. And yeah, I, I went through a 20s wondering about the relationship that my friends have with themselves and sex and and love and, and what it's like to go into the sexual arena and, and perform to a certain level. Or It really does fascinate me, all, all of that stuff. It's completely fascinating. And actually, as you're talking, I was thinking about how men's dick size is also used as a compliment in the sense of like using a phrase like big dick energy, which Ariana Grande famously used of Pete Davidson. And Pete Davidson did a really interesting stand-up segment on it saying, actually, that's quite weird. I feel like something really personal to me has been appropriated. And just because we're intending it in a quote-unquote positive way doesn't make it okay. Because on the one hand, you're being told as a man you need to regulate your testosterone, be less aggressive, be less quote unquote toxic. And on the other hand, you're like, hey, he's got big dick energy. Yeah, How yeah, appealing right. and attractive. Like you're so right to draw this to our attention. And I can't believe that I've never really questioned it before. Well, I mean, I can understand. Do you know what I mean? I can understand because there's enough of it coming the other way. We're constantly engaging in all types of different power games. and yeah. power. There's so many intersections that it does often come down to a case by case basis of, It is something that I intend to discuss more because 
I think that my journey has been around valuing myself to feeling worthy, to feeling like my sexual energy, my attractiveness, my, I don't know, just all those things. The better connection I have to that, the better relationship I have with those parts of myself, the healthier I am as a person and the healthier choices I make. So considering that some of these conversations I don't hear often in terms of, you know, relationships between men and their bodies, society's relationships to men's bodies I wonder you know if just being open about that can encourage a space where there's more self-worth and value found and there's more respect for self which would hopefully create a healthier environment because sometimes I think as well people project this insecurity I can imagine that I have the potential to project an insecurity if it had got to me to a particular level you know and then you can end up saying something means someone else and then, it, and then you're just spreading that energy it's an interesting one. It really is. I, I'm so glad you picked that failure. Thank you, Jordan, for opening up about that. It's an incredibly courageous thing to do, even though I'm sure you won't label it as courage, but I think it really, really is. There is a full failure, as I mentioned at the outset, which I do want to get into super quickly because it talks about something that I'm obsessed with, which is reality television and how it shapes our culture and just the enormous head fuck that it must be to be in it. And your fourth failure that you gave me was your failure to complete the island, which is the Bear Grylls show. So I didn't watch it, I confess. So what happened? No, don't. Don't okay. watch it. Okay. <laughs> Yo, I'm being dead fucking serious with you right now. Don't watch it. Listen, I found out Crispin Mills is your cousin. That's where my yeah. research stops. Oh, fucking hell. Yeah, no. So I was skeptical about putting this one in just because I feel with some of my TV appearances, the less I talk about it, the better. So people don't ever, ever think of going back and watching them. But recently I've spoken about it a little bit more with my closer circle because of Love Island being back on television. And I just have an understanding of what can happen in reality television. Also, I asked my girlfriend if she thought it would be a good failure and if it's too boring. And she was into it because she thought it'd be nice to have a kind of... Uh, different energy on one of the failures yes so jade's welcome uh, on anytime btw yeah. tell her hey listen hey listen yeah yeah i will i will so i did bear girls the island years ago i wanted to do it as a reality show because i felt it was more re respectable my measurement of respect was the relationship between reality and what was honestly shown on screen i thought on the basis that people were literally on an island and then filmed by people on the island who are also competing in the challenge it yeah. felt pretty straight up rather than like i'm a celeb where people are having like fags like when the cameras are off and cheese sandwiches and shit right it's none of that it's like you go into an island and you're really on that island you know bear grills you know all that kind of vibe so i agreed to do it and at that time me and myself as a person, I was definitely on this hyper curious vibe. I was almost peaking at this point in terms of picking something up, looking at it and then just throwing it down and then carrying on with my life. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so like, I, someone said, do you want to go on a desert island? I went, yes, I want to see what a desert island is like. And I went on there, I was supposed to be there for a month and about two and a half weeks in or two weeks in, I got bored, Elizabeth. I was bored. And there was this bizarre situation where a couple of people had left already and I, I had wandered off from the campsite and I'd looked back at it and I saw people filming on this campsite and this is gonna sound so wild it's kind of just me just saying it as as off the cuff as this but a lot of our shit got stolen by pirates <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so like when we were moving campsites, we had to leave some luggage because it was too much to carry. And we were allowed to have any medications that we were on basically with us. And I had just been prescribed. I'd been re-diagnosed with ADHD on the build up to the show and then given medication that I had to keep taking on the island. And that along with everyone else's shit had got stolen and like a, a camera. And I thought to myself, am I going to potentially have some kind of mental episode on a TV show? Like, I, I don't know. I just, I didn't know what was on the other side of me not taking this medication at that time. I know what's now. I'm fine with it. I'm not on it anymore. And also I thought it'd be funny to leave because, <laughs> because everyone was sat there going, oh, you know, I'd kill for a cheeseburger, man. Like, oh, I'd kill for a strawberry milkshake. Like everyone's going. And I just got to this point, Elizabeth, where I was like, you know, you can leave, right? <laughs> I was going like, you know, this is a this is a show. Like this is <laughs> as we were in this bizarre delusion where it was like we must survive, but you know we must survive God, on like, this island. It's like a microcosm of society of what you were saying earlier. Like none of yeah. us thinks that we can disenfranchise ourselves, but we can. We can choose not to be part of this hyper competitive structure. It's all yeah. an illusion. But this was so surreal. Like there was even we had to pretend that like people with boats weren't going past of just like loads of coconuts and like stopping off to go and pick some more coconuts. And, like if this was a real survival thing, mate, I would have been on one of those boats. I was off. I'm gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we had to have this kind of cognitive dissonance. And it got to the point where I was like, guys, come on, man. Like you can just leave. You can just ring them up right now. They're contractually obliged to let you leave. So I was like, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna go. I spoke to everyone, I was like, look, I'm on the island. I figured I've seen what it's like. It's pretty horrible like kind of boring we couldn't build anything because they kept raining all the time and you know we went and found water and pineapples and got coconuts i remember climbing a lot of trees to get coconuts and it was fun but i wanted to do other stuff <laughs> and i felt a bit i was too busy in myself i wasn't i hadn't done like a 21 day meditation all that shit at yeah. that point in my life i was just busy so i rung them up and was like guys i want to scoot and they were fuming man this guy, the, the, yeah, 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 yeah. The dude was fuming. The guy, the producer was like, no, no, no. You're supposed to be the one that comes up with the creative, you know, da-da. and I'm like, yeah, you yeah, know, I get that, but I'm just looking to bounce, mate. Like, I'm not really, I'm just, <laughs> and they tried to keep me there for like three days or something. I ended up like, which was actually against the contract, but you know, I'm not that fussed about him. And what was even more mad about it was they actively, and I mean this, and this is why I want to talk about Love Island and our society's, you know, susceptibility to fiction, that the producer consciously made an edit to make me look shit, consciously created a story of me being a lazy lie about or wasn't needed on the island anyway. And at this point in my life, I would hold my hands up on my life to being this supposed person but I was shocked once I left I got flown back I had the little moment to I was still two and a half weeks with fucking I had like one meal you know what I mean it was like it was pretty intense but I know for a fact it's not even the thing I know that they had a chronological story that they were going to tell which would include you know the fact that me and a group of people went to find another campsite and da, 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 all this kind of stuff that just happened I was someone who liked to go out and find things that was what I felt was my role and then there was one moment where I struggled to keep the campsite tidy right and there's a little beef of me and one of the other islanders and i said something like about struggling to tidy because i have adhd i do genuinely find it quite difficult to organize i realize that's not an excuse in my life i've now found techniques that can help me do it like the pomodoro method and all types of shit stuff that i didn't have on a fucking desert island but i look at mess and it confuses me a lot of the time i don't see the bit after i get overwhelmed but anyway 
They didn't say anything about me having ADHD, anything about none of this shit. They threw the chronology out the window and just started cutting together these stories about people's individual character traits and just cut together. It was wild what they did. They cut together shots of me after having accidentally poisoned myself on unfiltered water. I had the shits for like two days. They cut in shots of me passed out on the beach whilst I was going through this illness and cut it together with people saying that my behaviour was up and down and I wasn't very good at maintaining the campsite. And they cut out three or four journeys of me going to get food and cut them together. So they cut in all these different journeys as one journey and then overdubbed it by saying that the campsite was surprised that Jordan had come back with like this yucca plant. And I was like, (laughs) and I remember going like, whoa, this is like genuinely... That that must be so odd to watch back because you strike me as someone who, you know, you like to please people. You want people to like you and to approve of you. Yeah. And then if someone's telling you that story about yourself and seems to have the footage, yeah. what does that do to your sense of self? Like, did you at every point question? Were you like, oh, no. maybe this is me? No, 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 no. Because Elizabeth, the extent of this, this is why this is the general point on reality television. Yeah. Look, I agreed to sign up for that. That's what you get, you know. I believe the British public were open to the idea of me being lazy for various Look, we can get this a whole other conversation, but people's first idea of me is as like a happy 18 year old fucking head in the clouds guy. So maybe that's a more, maybe they can accept that. There were other Islanders who I think were portrayed in a more positive light, who there would potentially have been things that would counter that discussion. You know what I mean? But I think I was just genuinely from an actual directorial perspective, from a story perspective, I was shocked because... At one point, they cut in someone saying something about, I don't know, like the campsite as part of this storyline of me being lazy. And I wasn't even on the island when the person said it. Can I ask you a difficult question here? Yeah, please. Do you think that race played a part? Because there's this stereotype of a young, black, lazy man. I don't even want to. Maybe. That's deep, isn't it? I was the only black boy on there. Maybe. Anyway. It could well have been. This is something that happens in television and that's what I take responsibility for. I just expected a little bit more from the island itself. But now I carry this understanding of ultimately these people are cutting together like 24, sometimes 48 hours of footage and creating a one hour show that has to have some kind of theatrical arc to it. And knowing what they can do, knowing my experience of all of those people on the island and seeing how it was cut together... And then recontextualized, by the way, with voiceovers, which is wild. That's like, you know, that's what the fictional part. When I look at things like Love Island, I I catch myself, man. You know what I mean? I catch myself like watching this show and being like, oh, fuck that person. (laughs) You know, like, like, and and then I think I really have absolutely no idea about what's going on. And I can't, I don't know what conversations they've had. These people could have sat down and spoken. Two of my least favorite characters on this fucking show could have sat down and had the most heartfelt, insightful, deep, vulnerable conversation. But in order to keep with a certain thing, they'll cut together the one bit where they say something dodgy about another guy or they say something misogynistic or, or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And what year was this? Do you remember? It would have been 2017, 16 or 17. That is is wild. Thank you so much. That was so fascinating. I'm glad Jade told you to keep this in. Well, yeah. (laughs) And I will say, you know, it is a legit failure though. That was another funny thing I will say, just because it adds to the failure umbrella, is that I did, when I went round the Islanders before I left, I said to them like, 
why are you staying? I remember, so, I remember going to everyone going like, why are you staying? Someone would be like, oh, you know, I'm going through a bit of a tough time with my partner. All right, fair enough. Or like, or I don't know, I don't quit. All right, why are you staying? Because I promised myself that I would do this for my future, whatever. Yeah, okay, cool. Why are you staying? Because a friend of mine did it last year, this is a camera person, and they really regret it. Like, honestly, Jordan, I think you're going to regret this. And I was just like, I'm fine with regret. I remember saying that, like, I've got loads of regrets. I remember thinking that. I'm absolutely fine with it. I can regret this. That's cool. That's not enough for me to stay and endure this for the sake of television, you know? And I rate myself for that. Yeah, I rate you for that as well, because I think we really marginalise quote unquote negative feelings and experiences so things like regret or quitting but actually knowing when to quit is a really powerful thing yeah and regret's fine man it's a reminder that you're human well listen Jordan Stevens I don't regret asking you back on the podcast because (laughs) you every time I talk to you I find it so enlightening and entertaining and just wonderful you're just so brilliant and I'm so happy that listeners will get to experience that for themselves. I can't thank you enough Mm. for allowing me to chat to you yet again and for these brilliant failures. It's been a wonderful conversation. I I thank you. I was buzzing, honestly. I was buzzing that you asked me to do the live show because, like I said, I listened to your podcast over lockdown being a massive thing. I said to you, I listened to the one with with Mo Gorda, I think, and it was like a massive shift for me. So thank you for doing this and big love. See you this time next week. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, We don't have to do it it. again. (laughs) More failures. All right, I've got a list of about 15. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Jordan Stevens, for coming on How to Fail. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.